Hello everybody and welcome once again to All My Movies as we wrap up our look back at some holiday classics and we are ending this retrospective, at least for this year, with one of my favorite, possibly my favorite holiday movies of all time, Frank Capra's 1946 It's a Wonderful Life. Not just one of the best Christmas movies ever made, but in my opinion, one of the best movies ever made, period. There is so much to get into with this movie, not only the movie itself, but also my guest today, who is one of my favorite people in the movie criticism world. He is somebody who I grew up reading and watching on television. Leonard Maltin will be joining me later in the show to talk about the making of and the legacy of this landmark American film. But before we get to that, I want to give you some information on how and when it was made, and then some things about the movie that were pretty common knowledge at the time, but that I had to research and that only enhanced my understanding and enjoyment of what exactly is going on in It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life was filmed in the spring and summer of 1946, less than a year after the official end of World War II, and its director, Frank Capra, was also making his return to Hollywood after spending the war effort working as a filmmaker and documentarian. And while deciding what project would be his re-entry into Hollywood, Capra knew exactly what kind of film he was not interested in making. I certainly wasn't going to make a any pictures about war. I have uh, so sick of war. I hated that the, the damn war. I was not very happy within the war. I, I was very active, but I'm not very happy uh, about the human race. Frank Capra wasn't the only key player with It's a Wonderful Life that was making his return to Hollywood. Star James Stewart was the first major Hollywood star to enlist in the Army following Pearl Harbor and spent the duration of the war fighting in the Army Air Forces. He was making his first appearance in front of the cameras in several years, and according to co-star Sheldon Leonard, it was a transition that he was not entirely comfortable with. He, I think, felt a little insecure about his technique at that time because... It had been years since he had stood in front of a camera, and uh, it was interesting to watch him regain his confidence and take control. Working from a short story written by Philip Van Doren Stern several years earlier, Frank Capra developed the screenplay with the married couple Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who were best known at that time for their work on the Thin Man films. And the movie was produced by Liberty Films, that ringing bell at the beginning of the movie. And if you wonder why you haven't seen that logo on a whole lot of other films, that's because it was an independent production company that was founded by Frank Capra and Samuel J. Briskin, who was a well-known power producer in Hollywood at the time. But Liberty Films would actually be forced to sell in 1947 to Paramount Pictures because of largely the financial failure of It's a Wonderful Life. As a matter of fact, Liberty would only produce two films, one of them it's a Wonderful Life, and the other one, 1948's State of the Union, starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. Rounding out the main parts in the cast were Thomas Mitchell, an Oscar winner for his role in Stagecoach, who was also well-known for his role as Scarlett O'Hara's father in Gone with the Wind, Henry Travers as the naive but lovable angel Clarence, Lionel Barrymore, also an Oscar winner as the heartless banker Mr. Potter, and a contract player on loan from MGM named Donna Reed, who would play the key role of Mary Bailey, George's wife and partner. And one of the things that I love about the character of Mary in this film is that she's not just a bystander. She's not just the wife character. As a matter of fact, she is right there with George Bailey for most of the major events in this movie. It's her idea to use the $2,000 for their honeymoon to help bankroll the building and loan to get it through the run that's happening on the bank. How much do you need? Hey, I got $2,000. She's also seen right alongside George welcoming the new tenants to the homes in Bailey Park. Bread, that this house may never know hunger. 
salt, that life may always have flavor. And she's the one who renovates the Bailey home and turns it from a dilapidated old house to a true home for George and their family. And for so long, Donna Reed was known primarily as the star of her own sitcom, which ran from 1958 to 1965 and was heavily in rotations with reruns for many, many decades after that. But as those reruns fade and the Donna Reed show is less and less known, I feel like Mary Bailey is the role that most people will know Donna Reed from in the future, and it's going to be the cornerstone to an impressive show business legacy. You know, when most people think of It's a Wonderful Life, I feel like they think of the last half hour of the movie, where George sees what the world would be like if he was never born, and then, of course, he comes home and there's the famous ending of the film. But there's actually an hour and 40 minutes of the movie that happens before then. That's all the story of George Bailey, and where a lot of the great stuff about the movie is also found. And the movie starts with a visual effects shot. This zoom out from Bedford Falls as we hear the prayers of all the different residents. We go into the heavens and past the moon, into the stars where we see these two galaxies talking to each other, basically two angels in the form of galaxies. Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey. This is a pretty far out way for a movie to start, particularly one that's made in 1946. And It's a Wonderful Life had some pretty impressive visual effects, not just by going out into space, but also through the snow that was used in the film. They actually pioneered a new way to do snow on film that would allow them to roll sound. The other snow that they used was far too crunchy and noisy. And the engineers who designed that snow would win an Academy Award for the development of that process. We start the story of George's life in 1919, where we see George Bailey rescue his younger brother Harry from falling into the ice. This causes George to go deaf in one ear, but ensures that Harry will grow up and become a war hero who saves a transport full of soldiers in World War II. George also saves the life of a young child in Bedford Falls when he notices that the town druggist, Mr. Gower, has accidentally put poison in some capsules that he's supposed to take to the boy's family due to Mr. Gower's son's untimely death and the druggist drinking due to his sorrow. Look at the bottle you took the powder from. It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. I know you feel bad. Mr. Gower was played by actor H.B. Warner, who actually relished the idea of playing sort of a low-down, drunk character, particularly in the alternate Bedford Falls sequence that we see later in the film, reportedly because he got to go against type by playing a drunk, and that's because he was primarily known for playing Jesus Christ almost 20 years earlier in Cecil B. DeMille's The King of Kings. H.B. Warner's place in silent film history would be further cemented a few years later when he was included as one of the waxworks alongside Buster Keaton and Anna Q. Nelson in Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, a group of fading silent film stars who joined Norma Desmond occasionally at her house to play bridge. Spade? Pass. The movie then jumps ahead to 1928, where George is getting ready to travel around Europe, desperate to escape the small town of Bedford Falls. And it's actually kind of a heartbreaking part of the movie. His father's given his life to Bedford Falls by running the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, which he has barely been able to keep in business for his entire life. George talks down to him and talks about wasting his life working in a shabby office. And you, you see how this affects his father. And it becomes even sadder when you realize that these would be essentially the last words that George would speak to his father, who suffers a stroke and dies that very night. Now you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. 
The irony also runs very deep because it's George who ultimately ends up in that same shabby office because the partners at the building alone agree that they will only keep the company in business and not sell to the evil banker Mr. Potter if George Bailey remains on to run the business. I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. Uncle Billy here. He's your man. But George, they'll vote with Potter otherwise. This is also what I call the rom-com portion of the movie because we get the meet-cute between George Bailey and his future wife Mary at his brother Harry's high school prom. George and Mary participate in a Charleston contest and then unwittingly fall victim to a high school prank which involves opening the floor to the swimming pool underneath the gymnasium. And then we get the two of them walking down the street in their scavenged locker room clothes singing Buffalo Gals. Before a wardrobe malfunction ends with Mary being trapped in a hydrangea bush. Shame on you! I'm going to tell your mother on you! Well, my mother's way up in the corner there. We then skip ahead to 1932 where Mary returns to town from college and we get a reunion between George and his future wife that is much steamier and much more sensual than just about anything that the production censors were allowing to go through at that time. Shortly after that, George and Mary are married, and then we get to a part of the movie that I never really understood until I sat down and did a little more research into what a building and loan does and why they have to save it from the bank run that is happening as depicted in the film. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. Let's start with the Bailey Brothers building alone, what it did and what it meant to the town of Bedford Falls. And what a building alone is, and they largely were phased out in the mid-1930s, is a group of people who would become members, who would essentially buy into the business for the greater good, for mutual benefit. So you would buy in as a member of the building alone, you would, you would receive shares in the business, and then as a member, you could leverage those shares in order to gain access to a home mortgage so that you could buy a house. Now, usually not everybody could do it at the same time because you had a limited number of members. They are usually smaller organizations. So generally, people would take turns. One person would leverage their shares. They'd get the money for the home mortgage. They'd start paying it back. Somebody else would then get money from their shares and get a home mortgage. So this wasn't a business that would hand out mortgages willy-nilly. But over time, you could mortgage houses for each of your members. And that's what George Bailey and the building alone and George Bailey's family had been doing in Bedford Falls for all these decades. slowly allowing the citizens of Bedford Falls, many of whom were lower and middle class families, to own their own homes. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. Now, the reason that the Baileys and Mr. Potter were always at such odds is that Mr. Potter was the town banker. He owned the major bank in town, and he would not give out home loans to what he called the riffraff of Bedford Falls. Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? This rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? But Mr. Potter was also a landlord. So basically, he had a monopoly, except for the Bailey building and loan, on how people could get money and access housing. That's why Bailey would constantly talk about Mr. Potter's slums and how people were trapped in there. Because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. 
Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken down shack? Without George Bailey and the Bailey Brothers building and loan, the lower and middle class citizens of Bedford Falls would have no option but to rent property from Mr. Potter, and that's what he wanted. He wanted that monopoly on the real estate market in Bedford Falls, and this is why there is so much tension between these two men. It should also be noted that Mr. Potter expresses some very overt anti-immigrant sentiments, particularly when he snarls at George Bailey that he helps out all the garlic eaters in town. Trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid, to a lot of garlic eaters. Garlic eater is certainly not a common term today, but at that time it was a derogatory term for Italian immigrants. And of course, the first couple that we see George and Mary helping move into their house is Mr. Martini, the owner of the bar, and himself, an Italian immigrant. This brings us to the run on the bank, which we see in the film. And I was under the mistaken impression that a bank run was something that only happened at the very beginning of the Great Depression, basically on Black Tuesday in 1929, the day the stock market crashed. But as a matter of fact, these were very common for a few years at the very beginning of the Depression. And we are taking place, this section of the movie is taking place in 1932. Essentially, what would happen is that there would be a fear among a city or a town's population that their local local institution was about to go under, that it was going to become financially insolvent. And before the Great Depression, there was no FDIC, which meant that if you had money in a bank and it went under, your deposits were not federally insured. If your money was in a bank that went bankrupt, you lost all your money. So people would rush to the bank in an attempt to withdraw their money, which ended up being a self-fulfilling prophecy because most banks don't keep all of the money on hand. They would run out of the money and actually become insolvent. And that's why the Great Depression was such a serious financial time for the United States. It wasn't just the financial reality, it was the fear which caused so many banks to actually go under for fear that they were going to go under. And we see Potter offer 50 cents on the dollar for every share in the building and loan. What he's trying to do here is lure Bailey's customers away and essentially divest them of the building alone and become customers at his bank by saying, you may lose all your money with George Bailey. I will guarantee you if you come do business with me and close your accounts that you will get at least half of your money from my bank right now. If all of George's customers had left that day, the business would have been defunct. Because financial institutions have changed so much over time, then the idea of a building and loan is far more antiquated than it would have been back in 1946. And it's important to keep that in mind when we're watching the movie because it does inform so much about George Bailey's importance to this town. Dozens of the prettiest little homes you ever saw. 90% owned by suckers who used to pay rent to you. As we move past the Great Depression, we see that George Bailey's dream of traveling and seeing Europe couldn't even be realized by serving his country in World War II. He's deemed 4F, which meant ineligible for service due to the loss of hearing in his ear when saving his brother from the ice as a child. And there is a little bit of irony in the fact that Mr. Potter is the head of the draft board, which means that he is the one who would have classified George Bailey 4F. So even though it is George's ear that keeps him from military service, it is once again Mr. Potter who keeps George Bailey in Bedford Falls. This brings us to Christmas Eve 1945, where the movie begins and ends, and we see George Bailey suicidal after his Uncle Billy accidentally hands $8,000 that was meant to be deposited in the bank to Mr. Potter. The bank examiner is in town, and this means that with the missing cash, there are soon to be questions about corporate malfeasance and embezzlement. You realize what this means? 
It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. George sees everything he has fought and sacrificed for crumbling around him due to one mistake, and that eventually finds him in Martini's Bar, where Jimmy Stewart gives perhaps the best acting performance of his career as he breaks down and asks God for help. I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. Before George can jump off a bridge, he is rescued by Clarence, an angel sent from heaven, who decides to show him what life would truly have been like if he were never born. And this journey through a dark alternate reality is filled with moments that are both poignant, such as George finding out that the entire transport of soldiers died because he wasn't there to save his brother as a child. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. And some moments that are laughable by today's standards, particularly when George finds out that Mary, who by my count is 35 years old at this point, is an old maid who's closing up the library because she never married. She's an old maid. She never married. Where's Mary? Where is she? She's just about to close up the library! Eventually, George realizes how precious his life and life in general is, and he wishes to live again, a wish that Clarence grants. He returns home to hug his kids, and then Mary comes home to show him that the entire town has come to his aid. And then we see the arrival of George's war hero brother, Harry, who gives one of my favorite toasts in cinematic history. To my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> Frank Capra had a derogatory name for a lot of what he made from some of his critics. People called it Capricorn because of its idealism, because of its emotion and sentimentality. I will agree that it has all of those things, but I think it's in a great balance and it fits and serves this story because these are characters we like. And when we have seen George Bailey's life, when we've seen what he has sacrificed and what he's done for everyone in the town of Bedford Falls, then we want a happy ending for him. And that's exactly what we get. That's right. That's right. It's a Wonderful Life was released right around Christmas time in 1946 and actually was not particularly enthusiastically reviewed by critics, nor was it embraced by audiences. As a matter of fact, it was, as I mentioned before, a commercial flop. It was nominated for a handful of Oscars but didn't win any, and then it sort of faded into obscurity until a paperwork error failed to renew the copyright 28 years after the movie was released. This apparent lapse in the copyright allowed television stations to program It's a Wonderful Life right around the holidays when they needed a movie to fill space, and that's where a lot of people found this movie for the first time. It's why it became a holiday staple in so many households, because it was basically free programming for a lot of different TV stations. Plus, with the advent of the home video industry, Anybody was free in the 1980s to issue their own version of It's a Wonderful Life, and they did so. Now, the film was eventually put back under copyright, which is why you only see it, I think, right now on NBC here in the United States one or two times a year. But for a long while, anybody who wanted to show It's a Wonderful Life could, and it began its journey to be one of the most well-regarded films in American cinematic history. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. But while It's a Wonderful Life took a long time to become a favorite of moviegoers and film fans, it had long been a favorite of its director, Frank Capra, and its star, James Stewart. That's a great film. I love that film. It's my favorite film. And in a sense, it epitomizes everything I've been trying to do and trying to say in the other films, only it does it very dramatically with a, 
with a very unique story. There is so much more to get into with It's a Wonderful Life, and I'm very happy to do it today with my very special guest, one of the voices that got me into film criticism to begin with, and I'm so happy to throw to this interview right now. I am beyond excited to have my guest joining me on the show today. He is one of the critics that got me into movies. I literally have many, many, many uh, volumes that he has written on film. You can find him on his own podcast along with Jesse Malton called Malton on Movies. And you can play the game, King of Movies, the Leonard Malton game, which is from Mondo. You can buy that right now. Uh, I am so, so happy. I've had the privilege to talk to him a few times about movies. Uh, Leonard Malton joining me today. Leonard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, flattery will get you everywhere with me. (laughs) Thank you for that lovely intro, Dan. So we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life as we wrap Mm -hmm. up the holiday season uh, talking about movies. And we've been talking about some modern, what some people would deem modern classics. But when I think of of a Christmas classic or a holiday classic, the first movie that I always think of is it's a wonderful life because it's it's first of all it's ever present it seems like at christmas time but it also captures so much about the season for me well yes it does uh you know it's uh it's a sentimental time of year it's a time that families get together the year's coming to an end it's a time of reflection and all that kind of inspires sentiment which is why uh when it's uh, handled well as it is in, in this Frank Capra movie, uh, I think it makes us especially open and vulnerable uh, to those emotions. Well, I, something I always love to ask our guests, and it's a little tougher because I can't even remember the first time I saw this movie. It seems like it's just always existed in my brain. Is there, do you remember, if not the first time you saw It's a Wonderful Life, one of the more memorable experiences you've had with the movie? Because this is one of those films that touches people's lives in many different ways. Well, there was a period in the 1980s into the 90s when it was believed to be in the public domain. Because of that, every uh, two-bit VHS <laughs> company and retailer was was showing it, and every cable station. And so what I remember is one Christmas Eve, my wife and I were, were, were standing around in the kitchen. We had a little, little TV set there. And we played a Wonderful Life Roulette with our remote control and went around you know, the dial, so to speak, uh, when there were not quite as many stations as there are now, and, uh, and, and came into the movie at different junctures on every station. So that that that's my most memorable encounter with it. One thing that I love about talking film with you is that, you know, in addition to being a critic, you have such a great grasp of film history as well. And one of the things about history of any kind, movies are no different, is that it's on it's on a long enough it's on a long timeline. This was not an instantly beloved classic. As a matter of fact, there were a few decades where it kind of was regarded as a nice enough film but certainly not the American film classic that it is today. Critically, because critics didn't love the movie when it came out, why do you think that the critical perspective on the film has changed so much as well? Part of that, I think, has to do with uh, expectations, uh, which is my my belief that every reaction to the movie is based on expectations. You're, You're either let down or pleasantly surprised, or, or in some way it plays against your 
what you're expecting to see. Frank Capra has had his ups and downs critically over the years. Certainly in the 30s, he was riding high. Then came World War II. And of course, he, he is one of the five great directors profiled in a uh, terrific book that became an equally good uh, documentary series called Five Came Back. If you haven't read it or seen it, it's great. That has a lot to do with the film that we see. And the other one who was affected just as much, if not more, uh, was the star, Jimmy Stewart, who saw active duty, went on bombing missions, and refused to talk about his war experiences. So for he and Capra, this was their first dip of the toe back in the water, making a Hollywood movie, and they were both questioning the value of making a movie. I mean, you know, movies seemed kind of trivial. So I think those emotions create an undercurrent to the film. <laughs> that was not obvious to the critics <laughs> right. at the time. Do you, and, think do you think it's possible that because it was, I mean, this was just after World War II, came out in 1946, yeah. went into production, obviously, earlier in that year, probably less than a year after the war had ended. Do you think maybe one of the reasons that people reacted kind of so-so, both critically and publicly, was that it is a very idyllic film. It is about, you know, family values. And, you know, I wonder if after the war, which was so big, and then this is a, this is a story of small town, um, one man in a small town, you know, I wonder if some might have thought that it was kind of lightweight or frivolous or, you know, it's like you've just come from this big monstrous global event and then this is a very small story about one man's life and what one man can achieve capra uh, uh in his autobiography uses the, the term capra porn <laughs> to describe his own some of his own work i think in that moment and certainly he had a very healthy ego but at that moment i think uh, he was selling himself short because this film while on the surface is you know about old-fashioned family values and the things that can be achieved in a small town and a community that pulls together. It's about a man who tries to kill himself. You know, you don't get any darker than that. People obviously weren't paying attention. <laughs> right. They dismiss this as just a piece of fluff. Uh, it's anything but. It's anything but. I feel like the film does get painted with the really the last 30 minutes of it, which is the part where he goes back and he shows them what his life would yeah. be like. And then you end with that, I think, wonderful scene, you know, of the everyone, the, the entire town coming right. together. But I think that's what, in, in a lot of the collective mind, people think that's the whole movie. When as a matter of fact, it's an hour and 40 minutes of George's life. And and I agree. It's, it's I think people look at the end and, and a lot of people dismiss it as like, oh, it's just this sentimental hokum you know, very gooey and sentimental. But you know, the scene where James Stewart is sitting at the bar and and praying and weeping and saying, like, I don't know what to do. I'm not a praying man, which, again, at the time, to be a, a film in the 40s, uh, have a, a lead character, your protagonist, to basically say, I'm not religious, which is somewhat controversial for the mainstream. It does go a lot deeper than I think it gets credit for. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. When Capra shot that scene of Jimmy Stewart sitting at Martini's bar, when they got a good take, take one, uh, Stewart said to, to Capra, don't ask me to do that again. I, I, I can't do that again. So Capra did a photographic uh, blow up in order to get the push in that he wanted. The camera move happened optically 
they, they had their tricks back then too. When we look at where the film stands overall, just, just in the long thread of history, and we talk about 30 years for a while, it was sort of in a, in a limbo a little bit. And then in the 80s, and this, you know, the you know, kind of into the 90s, it became regarded as an American film classic. We're now kind of 30 years removed from that. Do you think it is kind of permanently inducted into the canon? Or do you think it's possible that maybe in another 20 or 30 years, it'll be kind of a film that popped a little bit, but might fall a little bit further back uh, on as other films get, get brought out? Anything's possible. Die Hard is on your list. Uh, <laughs> At one time, that would that would be an anti-Christmas movie. Anything is possible. So nothing is permanent anymore. All bets are off. Uh, if anything has a shot at being permanent, uh, it would be this film. I'm curious also, we it's something that we touched on. I actually did a video a while back that I recorded but haven't released yet uh, in a series that I want to make specifically focused on classics. And that one was about Casablanca. And I found a clip of you from that time, but this is another film that was engaged in that same debate, which is that there is, there was, and I, you know, you don't see it as much anymore. I think people kind of spoke that they didn't want it, but for a long time, there was a movement to, to colorize classic films. It's a wonderful life was one of them. One of the main ones that was being debated and discussed. And many people, including, um, I believe James Stewart himself and and many prominent critics, including yourself, spoke out against that. I just felt that the color wasn't needed. You know what I think? People have loved great-looking films like Casablanca just the way they are for more than 40 years. I don't think they're going to love them anymore in color. Is it just because you lose the essential flavor of what a film is and it becomes artificial, or is it the idea of just tampering with a classic in that way? It's a lot of things. It's it's tampering with the classic. You don't uh, you don't go and retouch the Mona Lisa. Uh, you don't chisel a few inches off the Venus de Milo. You know, uh, and, and you don't uh, uh, try to make uh, an Ansel Adams photograph into a Kodachrome color snapshot. Uh, so there's that. But then and then there's the respecting the intentions of of the filmmakers uh more to me it's respecting the historical context this was made in 1946 most movies in 1946 were in black you'll you'll see the factions of the time you'll hear the slang of the time every film is a mirror of its time whether it means to be or not but it can't help it it's a mirror of the moment it was made. Brushing a palette of color on it arbitrarily takes that away. I think it's it's taking something away from the movie, not adding something. To it. And besides, I don't like it. <laughs> I, I don't like, especially like the early days. Uh, it looks oh, like the early days, hell, yeah. you know, just awful. Uh, it, it depends too on the skill of the, and the taste, which is something you can't arbitrate, uh, of the art director uh, who's supervising the... Uh, the colorization. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen good examples of that. I've seen terrible examples. Well, there's a, the Blu-ray that I own, actually. The physical copy that I own of the film has two discs, and one of them, for some yeah. reason, is a colorized version. And yeah, I, same, same with Miracle on 34th Street. I, I can't bring myself to even put... I just I, I just want to... I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I'm a completist, so I don't like to throw things away, but I almost just want to get get rid of that. That's never going to go in the, the Blu-ray player. I'll sell, good, I'll sell good. <laughs> I think all the more... 
mm-hmm. something that I've always told people, and you know, I'm I'm certainly a a a, a budding critic, and 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 I like to think that I have a sense of film history, but I don't consider myself a film historian um, yet. That's an aspiration of mine at some point. But when I talk to people either here or on my Patreon page and people talk about a classic movie and they say, well, I think it's too old. And, and my response is always that a great story is timeless. Um, Lawrence of Arabia is a great story and it's a well-made film. It doesn't matter when it was made. It's, I think it's just as fresh today as it was when, it, when you know, it's the same as any other period piece. I mean, we watch movies that are made today, but set in the 40s or 60s or whatever. I think movies like It's a Wonderful Life are the same. It doesn't matter when it was made, if it's a great story. What do you say when when somebody, you know, if you're in a discussion with somebody, if you hear someone say like, well, you know, this classic or that classic, I I don't think I like it. It's it's just, it's too old. Um, You know, how do you encourage people to to really say like, no, you know, they're they're not. They were made a long time ago, but. I just try to, I, I try to ask people or encourage people be open-minded you know you don't have to like a film i can't order you to like a film nor would i but uh i can encourage you to be open-minded and to watch it with maybe fresh eyes you know if you if you you had a different reaction the first time you saw it try it again well, uh, Leonard Malton, uh, like I said, it is it truly is a, a rare thing for me to be able to talk to somebody who, you know, you were very much in my house growing up and and there weren't a whole lot of resources, particularly at the time without the Internet for kids that weren't in a major city to have that lifeline to movies and to find movies and 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 find out about them. So, you know, I you've always been a very revered figure. Um, in my movie life. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today about a true classic holiday or otherwise. And uh, you can find Leonard and Jesse Malton uh, on their podcast, Malton on Movies, which uh, if you want to find great classic films, that's a great one to listen to as well. And you can also play the Leonard Malton game, King of Movies, which is being made by Mondo. You can find that uh, wherever Leonard Malton games are sold. Exactly so. Uh, Leonard, thank you so much again for joining me today. Nice to see you and nice to hear you. Thank you once again to Leonard Malton. It's such a thrill to have him on the show. I hope we can have him back again. As I mentioned before, don't forget to check out the Malton on Movies podcast with Leonard and Jesse Malton and also Mondo's King of the Movies game. Leonard really is the king of the movies and it's always a thrill to talk to him about film. As we always do, I want to end the show by talking about the physical copy of It's a Wonderful Life that I own, probably the second or third copy of the movie that I've had over the years. This is a pretty bare-bones edition of the movie. Uh, It is a Blu-ray, so it's got a really good-looking print of the movie. It also has an older making-of documentary about It's a Wonderful Life hosted by a Father Dowling himself, Tom Bosley. Uh, Just a wonderful presence, a wholesome presence to talk about a wholesome movie. But that's pretty much it as far as what is on this disc here. Here on the Blu-ray collection. There is a second disc on the Blu-ray collection, but as I mentioned with Leonard Malton, it is a disc that will never see the inside of my Blu-ray player, and that is a computer colorized version of the film. Now, I did grab just a little bit of it to show to you right now so you can see the difference between the black and white version and the colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life, uh, but much like
like Leonard Maltin. I do not agree in any shape, form, or fashion with the colorization of old black and white movies, not least of all because it is done without the input of the original directors and the original creative team, or at least it isn't nine times out of ten. If George Lucas wants to go back and work with Star Wars, those were his movies, and he certainly had that right, although Disney now has those rights. Uh, But I do not think it is anyone else's responsibility, nor should they be given the ability to go back and alter the work of other directors and other craftsmen uh, decades after the fact. I think that it is usually a purely crassly commercial feature to include on these movies, and I hope that they are not included in future editions of the film, of which there are many, I'm sure. And that does it with my look at one of the greatest American movies and a true cinematic classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you to Leonard Maltin for coming on the show and talking about this film. And thank you for watching and listening. If you are listening to us, be sure to check out the video version of this show over on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. And if you're watching us on SEN, I would love for you to listen to the show. You can download it wherever you can find podcasts. And please, if you like what you hear or watch, leave a rating and a review. It really helps the show grow. And we want to keep growing this show and getting it even better as we start moving out of 2020 and into 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in to hear about It's a Wonderful Life. We'll be back next time with another movie, but for now, it's time to go back on the shelf.